0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Here's how these stories begin, and we don't want to miss this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this is the context that prompts Jesus to tell these two very, very familiar stories about lost things being found. Because there are some people, not all, but some people in Jesus' day that are upset with him for who he's hanging out with and eating alongside. In fact, they start to grumble. The text says that they muttered, right? And so Jesus just kind of serves up real quick two short stories meant to subvert they're thinking. So this is this is gonna be a challenging story that Jesus is gonna tell them. Uh, but why are they upset? What's what's the deal? We're just eating. We're just having a meal. Chill out, right? Who you eat with in the ancient world really really mattered, because the idea is is that if you're associating with sinners, well then you must be a sinner like them too. So what what do you have in common with them? And if you have something in common with them, then you certainly don't have anything in common with us. And so we see the distance here. And some around Jesus clearly understand what he's doing. This is why they're upset. They, they get the point. His meal with the tax collectors and sinners is his sign of his acceptance of them. The Pharisees know it. They get it. They, they can see it clearly. And what's interesting is that this entire section of Luke, chapters 15 through 18, if you're free this afternoon, go read through the section. One of the things you're going to notice in that chapters 15 through 18, is that the focus of Jesus' ministry in these chapters is to outcasts and outsiders. So this is a conversation that's been coming for a little while, is what Jesus is trying to say. And so they grumble, Jesus, how can you be with them when you should be with us? Might be the thought behind their comment. But notice in the story, who's actually gathered around to actually listen to Jesus? It's the outcasts. They're the ones listening. And Luke identifies two groups. You heard them, tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors, of course, are viewed as outcasts because they were people who sold their country out to the Romans. They're collecting taxes from their own people, taking money out of people's pockets, food out of their children's mouths, and so they are pariah. You're out here. And then the other group were sinners, And notice Luke even groups them together, tax collectors and sinners. They kind of just go together. And so Jesus hears their grumbling. He hears the charge. He welcomes sinners. And so Jesus tells these stories about a shepherd and his sheep. So let's take a look at that first story. Jesus begins with a typical scene that almost everyone in his audience would be familiar with. Ancient Israel, a lot of sheep herding going on. If we translated it to today, maybe it would be Jesus tells the story of a dog walker. Uh, I'm not sure. But more common in Jesus' day to work with sheep than maybe here in Greensboro. Uh, In ancient Israel, Jesus uh, begins uh, and starts here with this common uh, aspect of human life. Suppose you have 100 sheep. Now, by the way, this is not a small operation. They think that the average sheep um, number count for, like, a small size farm was, like, 15 to 20, maybe 25. This person's got 100 sheep, and so this is a pretty substantial level of sheep in the ancient world, or so I'm told. Um, now, as many of you know, in the story, one of the sheep goes missing, so one out of 100 is lost. And as many of you know, I'm not an outdoor type, type of guy, so when I hear this story... Um, you know, my response is, well, looks like we got 99 sheep now. <laughs> Sorry, little buddy. <laughs> like, should have stayed by. Um, not the response Jesus is looking for, right? That's not the response at all. No, in fact, in the parable, if you read it, it assumes, it assumes that we agree here that, okay, one's lost you, you're going to go find it. The whole parable operates on that assumption, that you go after and you look after the lost sheep. Now, sheep could obviously easily be lost as one shepherded them across open fields and territories. And so this shepherd goes out in pursuit. He leaves the 99, as we just sang, right? Comes from the song, comes from this um, parable. He leaves the 99 because they're okay. And he goes after the one who's not. And the shepherd is good at finding. So he finds the lost sheep, picks it up, places it on his shoulders, and carries the sheep. Back home. But that's not the end of the story. Take a look at verse six. Look at what happens when the shepherd gets home. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. There's rejoicing. He organizes a party to celebrate because what's lost has been found. And it's a moment for rejoicing. But don't miss the important issue here in Luke. Jesus is feasting with his friends, a.k.a. the restored lost sheep, and not everyone is happy with it. In fact, they're upset. And a problem arises as Jesus draws this parable to a close. It comes in verse 7. He says it's actually a bigger problem than just you not sitting down with a meal. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents... The 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The kingdom of God is oriented towards celebrating the one who repents. And Jesus' expectation is that those in the kingdom will be rejoicing with him. And that's the problem at the beginning part of this story. I think we learned something here, though, about the searching. We don't search like God searches. We, We just don't. We don't search like God searches. In fact, I'm one of the worst persons for looking for things. I'm not good at it. Lisa will tell you this. Maybe you've experienced this too with a friend or a spouse. You're at home. Here's the phrase. Uh, Hey, Lisa, where's the toothpaste? She says, it's in the drawer. And I go, I can't find it. It's lost. It's gone. It must have run out. And Lisa goes, did you look? And I, usually with contempt go, um, yeah, (laughs) duh. What do you think I was doing in here? Um, Okay, time out, quick confession. Here's how I look for things. Can't find it. (laughs) I do not lift anything up. If I can't see it, it's not there. That's how I look for things. So Lisa has been right this whole time. Um, So Lisa comes in, this prompts Lisa to come in. She lifts up like one object and finds automatically what I was looking for. Like, just like that. By the way, that's essentially marriage in a nutshell. It's your, it's your spouse doing the most obvious thing that you should be able to do on your own. But anyways, back to the question. Did you look? Were you searching? I'm really bad at finding lost things. And I wonder if that's how we approach other people, too. Uh, I tried. I looked, right? Right? That's the powerful point about this parable. We don't search like God searches. He is relentless in finding lost things. We give up, but God doesn't. And I'm struck by what the parable teaches us about us. Not just about the shepherd, what the parable teaches us about us. As sheep, it's easy for us to get lost. It's in our nature to wander and flee. As the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Sheep wander and we wander. And here comes in the radical grace of God who seeks after the wanderers, who seeks after the lost, the outcasts, to relentlessly pursue them until they're found, until they're back home. I wonder as we approach our relationships, if we don't approach this in the same way, We're in a relationship as long as that other person is committed to. What would it look like to be a person who, like Jesus says, not only am I staying, but I'm going to follow after you. I'm not going to let you go. This isn't too far from our friendships, our marriages, our kids. What might it mean to be faithful with Jesus to those who are wandering in our life? It's pretty easy to cut ties, but what if our assumption is that people are prone to wander? Can our task be one of faithful rescue rather than wrapping our arms, standing off in a corner with the attitude of, well, I'll be here when you come back? What does it look like to go after? Jesus teaches us that we pursue, we pursue relationships with sinners. We pursue, though, because we were once lost and now we're found. And we just want others to be found, too, to experience that sense of belonging. But here's the hard part. Sinners often do a lot of hurting. It kind of comes with the territory. And many parents in the room know the painful task of pursuing a child who wants nothing to do with them, with Jesus, or with the church. That's not an easy calling by any means but it's a calling that mirrors Jesus in the kingdom and how we pursue those who wander. Friends, how do we deal with disappointment or hurt with one another? Seems like a friend is drifting, making some poor choices. What does the group do? Sit back and say, well, they'll figure it out. They'll be back. Or is it one of intentional pursuit? Again, it's not an easy calling, but it's a calling in which God goes before us and with us. To do. Alright, Jesus has one more short story for us. The lost coin. Jesus tells this parable, and this one's a little different though. The urgency, I think, is more apparent. So notice in the last parable, we had a shepherd of kind of high status. He's got a hundred sheep and one goes missing. One out of one hundred is lost. Again, I'm willing to live with those odds. In the second parable, we meet a woman apparently of low economic status who's lost one out of ten coins. So the urgency is kind of ramped up here. This is a little more urgent. And Jesus moves on in verse 8. It's on the Or Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Again, the assumption in the parable is yes. Now, lost money, I think we can all relate with this one a little bit more than we can the little sheep right? No one likes to lose money. It's frustrating. It's costly. In our passage today, says silver coin, but what we think here is that this was called a drachma, fun little Greek term, and this was a day's wage. So she's worked for 10 days, and she's lost one whole day's worth of pay. That's the urgency. Part of her paycheck is missing. What would you do if that were you? Maybe for you, one day's wage isn't all that much, But you can imagine, if you want to ramp it up, what about one month's pay? One year's worth of pay. Now we're getting the sense of the urgency okay, I got to find this thing, or life's going to dramatically change. And that's exactly what she does. She searches fervently for that lost paycheck. She, as Jesus says in verse 8, her intentional activity, it's pretty serious. She says, uh, Jesus says that she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she searches carefully until she finds that one coin. Now, this would be hard to do because ancient houses typically only had about one window, and so there wouldn't be a lot of natural light. And so she's doing all she can to get a glimmer of that lost coin. And the parable, of course, is to show us that God, uh, the heart of God towards us. The woman in this story is desperate to to find the lost coin because it's immensely valuable to her is valuable have you ever lost anything valuable maybe it was a passport maybe it was a paycheck what's the most expensive thing you've ever just missed and gone missing how would you respond to that I think one of the most expensive things uh, that we have ever lost together and I realize I did not clear the story Oops. Uh, it was about 10 years ago when Lisa lost her engagement diamond in her ring. I remember receiving a call uh, with a somewhat hysterical Lisa on the other end, and she was teaching an aquatic exercise class in a university swimming pool, and in the hour after getting out of the pool, looked down at her hand and realized that the diamond was gone. Panic set in. Where did it go? How am I gonna find this again? What is my husband gonna think? How are we going to find it? It was obviously, of course, somewhere at the bottom of the pool. And my reaction, as you might imagine, was not the greatest. Um, it wasn't just the physical diamond that was upsetting, right? It was what the diamond represented. It could be replaced, but it wouldn't be replaced with the same one. And my response was a little like the woman in this story. My first reaction on hearing that the diamond was lost was, let's drain the pool. (laughs) Like, yeah, I don't care if the kids have swim lessons. It's going to be empty. I'm going to be down there on my hands and knees looking for a diamond this afternoon. Of course, the university was not willing to let me do that. I don't know why. Um, They wouldn't let me do it, but I was desperate. I was willing to do the most outrageous thing, um, drain a swimming pool, so that I could find something immensely valuable to us. We're going to find it. It was super unrealistic, by the way. That was not going to happen. It had probably been swept away. It's out in the ocean. There was no way we were going to find it. But it made us desperate. It made us willing to do some kind of outlandish things just to find it. Uh, We were moved to drastic action. Small conclusion, footnote, so we can move on with the sermon. We didn't find the diamond. So at our 10-year anniversary a few years ago, I bought Lisa an identical diamond and replaced it. So... Well, thank you, thank you, that's for sure. Uh, so this may come as news to you. What does the lost coin have to do with us? Well, if this is the story of God's heart towards us, it means, and this may be new news, but you are immensely valuable to God. Like, this is how God views us. You are of infinite worth to God. I know that can be hard for us to hear, Because much of the world might say to us, you're not valuable because you don't look a certain way. You don't have an important job. You don't make big decisions. You're not important. But the God of the gospel views you quite, quite differently. He sees you of immense worth. And so maybe you've wondered, as the sad thought runs around our head sometimes, would anyone miss me if I wasn't? here. There's this deep longing in our in our bones and in the back recesses of our brains that at the end of the day, what if we're just lost and no one's coming to find us and that this is all just kind of nice, but if it ever got hard, I'd be on my own. Would anybody miss me if I was gone? The answer is God would. God would, if you were lost, he would clear out the house and desperately search for you. He would not stop. In fact, he may be doing that very thing this morning. He may be here in the service and at the table showing you that he is recklessly in pursuit of you because he loves you and you're immensely valuable to him. Remember, the parables are meant to tell us what God is like. And then for that story to begin to shape us, to be those type of people. So if this is what God's like, if God searches and desires to be with the lost and the outcast, how do we care for those who are lost, those who are wandering, and those who are deemed as an outcast? This one's for the teenagers. School is back in session. You've had about a month's worth of school, give or take, right? Maybe your experience of school is just phenomenal. It's great. Friends are everywhere. There's conversations, laughter. It's amazing. You can't wait to go back on Monday morning. You have plenty of friends, but how might God be calling you to reach out to the outcast in your midst? We all know who that kid or who those kids are, right? It's pretty easy. Maybe it's the new kid that just moved to Greensboro, just doesn't know anybody, Maybe it's the kid who didn't make the team this year or whose parents got divorced over the summer. Maybe it's the kid who returned from last year, who was the outcast last year, and this year is just going to be one more year of feeling rejected. How might Jesus be calling you, yes, you personally, to show the students around you that they are immensely valuable? How does the classroom and the cafeteria table become a grand stage to show the immeasurable love of god how does it do that but it's not just teens though is it rejection feeling like an outcast doesn't stop with 12th grade it continues and maybe as we sit here this morning we're saying to ourselves you know i'm that i'm that person we're that other person i'm the outcast i feel rejected i feel unloved my relationships aren't going great right now family life is in the gutter in the gutter my work is tanking right now I feel like a social outcast to everybody I meet just feel like a burden maybe even here at church this morning you feel on the outside the good news is that if this is us this is you Jesus sees you Jesus values you and the heart of the good shepherd is for you Jesus dines and wants to feast with you like he does in this story. You're not an outcast to him because you are dearly beloved. And as much as that's true, and it is, here's the challenge for us as a community. People won't know how valuable they are to God until they know how valuable they are to you. They just won't. You can say it, I can repeat that last paragraph. You are immensely loved by God. Well, sometimes in our community, it comes down to people will not know how valuable they are to God until they know how valuable they are to us. And so our actions become key. Who do we ignore? Who do we pass over? Who do we push to the side? Who do we avoid? And what does that communicate about God to that person? How might we include those who feel like outcasts in our midst? But have you ever thought about the why? (laughs) Why? Why show uh, inclusion to other people? It comes from our identity. We have to be reminded that we were the pursued, and we still are. Jesus pursued us, and in that identity of being found by him, we want to include others. I was found, so I want you to be found too. I've experienced the overwhelming love of this community, and I want you to experience a part of that as well. Two parables, two short stories, lost sheep, lost coin. I don't want us to miss something about them, though. Did you see the structure of the parables? Like how the stories had all these things in common? Did you notice the common elements? They have a similar structure, and it's on the screen. Lost, found, rejoice. Lost, found, rejoice. Something is lost, something is found, and then there's rejoicing. Something is lost, something is found, and then there's rejoicing. But don't forget where we started this story in verse 1. Jesus is with the lost. They've been found by him, but there's no rejoicing. There's grumbling and complaining. And what we find at the end of these parables is that there should have been rejoicing at the lost ones being found. But the opposite was true. There was anger. Jesus says this isn't the kingdom story. The kingdom story is one of lost, found, and rejoicing. But imagine you're one of the Pharisees in the story. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They begin to hear about the kingdom of God, and they realize this is what they've been missing all along. And as one of the Pharisees, the response might be, Oh, great. Now they're going to be part of us. They're going to be in our midst. This is the anger, the resentment, but why? What's the big deal? Simple principle, it's hard to love someone that you despise. It's hard to love someone that you spent time and energy thinking about how much you just don't like them and how much they annoy you. And here's the challenge for us. Our joy is robbed by our disdain for groups that we've spent years hating. We can develop habits that are hard to break. When we continue to repeat the frame, they are bad, I don't like them, they are awful, I don't want them here with us. It's going to be hard to be excited or overjoyed when they come into the kingdom because our prejudices are going to come with them. That's not going to change overnight. Years of despising is going to override the joy that should be there. And here's the caution that Jesus gives us. If you can't rejoice over the loss being found, it is a telltale sign of a different kingdom at work because this is not the story of the kingdom. It tells a much, much different story. And here we get to the heart of, of the parables of Jesus and the story that he is telling in the Gospels. What if these parables are telling a much, much bigger story? What if this is the story of God and the story of us? Remember that story? It begins in Genesis, where a good God created a good world, but a good world that was tragically broken, and creation is now lost. What if the parables are telling this type of story and revealing the character of who God is and who God wants us to be, too? I can't underscore how important it is to start here in the story. When we talk about the gospel of God's rescue, it actually doesn't start with us being sinners. The gospel doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1. It starts with God's good creation and with his beloved humanity that has been tragically separated from him. He deeply loves us as his children and as any parent would do anything for their child, God is radically committed to pursuing and restoring his good creation, to bringing the lost and making them found. And so God isn't angry with you. He doesn't start with anger. He starts with love, that this is the child who's gone off, but I'm going to go find them and bring them back home. God is the good shepherd who will not rest until the last of his sheep are found. Like the woman in the coin, he searches relentlessly for his creation because it's valuable to him and because he deeply, deeply loves you. And Jesus tells the story of God's kingdom, and it's a rescue mission. What was lost can be found through him. Without Jesus, we are like lost sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus relentlessly pursues us until he finds us. And such a mission ought to bring joy. But Jesus raises the question, are those who are found excited when the lost ones come home? The parable is both a comfort and a deep challenge to us. It's a comfort to those of us who are lost and desperate to be found, but it's a challenge to those who are comfortable within the kingdom and would rather we just not get any more people in here. A little crowded. As we conclude, I want to leave us with an important question this morning. Do the lost, disobedient to God or insignificant people in our lives have any sense from us that God really loves them? What are their impressions from us? Because that's going to be the impression they have of God as well. As an action point, as we finish today, who is the lost sheep that God has you on mission to help find? It's not just a good shepherd, but the followers of the good shepherd do the same actions. Maybe this afternoon or Monday morning is a chance for us to take an inventory and hear from God on that person who is in need of rescue? Who is that person of immense worth to God that you would throw a feast for if they came into the kingdom? And the question is, if Jesus were to throw a feast, would we be just as excited as he was? Or maybe you're here this morning and you've realized that I'm one of those lost sheep. Like That's the point that jumped out into parable to me, that I'm just lost, that also means that Jesus has been searching for you. God has already found you this morning. And perhaps this is an opportunity to rejoice and to come home to God. As a staff team at Redeemer, we would love to have the joy of rejoicing with you and being found by God. And we get an invitation to do that each week as we move to the table. When we move to the table, we are reminded that the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin is our story. We were desperately lost before, God, before the Good Shepherd came and found us. And look at the feast he has thrown for us, a feast of his own body and blood. And at the table, we're reminded of God's limitless grace towards us and how he rejoices over us in this meal, a meal that shows us the story of the kingdom. Because we were, we were a bunch of lost ones who have been found by God's grace. Amen.